You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 60. Today we're asking the question, how does Safety 2 reimagine the role of a safety professional? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and if we've timed the queue right, this is the first Safety of Work podcast for 2021. So a happy new year to all of our listeners. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and examine the evidence surrounding it. But every 10 episodes, we indulge ourselves by talking about some of our own research, which may or may not be an important question relating to the safety of work or the work of safety. I think today definitely is an important question. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be talking about the final paper that David wrote as part of his PhD, moving away from the descriptive investigation towards the practical suggestions coming out of that work. David, can you tell us a little bit about how and why you wrote this paper? So Drew, this was the main game for me when I started my PhD, which was to understand how the new view safety theories might understand what the new view safety theories might mean for the design and the practice of the role of safety professionals. Or more practically, if if you as a safety professional wanted to lead and support your organization to introduce new view safety approach approaches, um, what would you be doing day to day in your role? And I first sort of brought this question to you and, and to Sydney at, at Griffith Drew. I'd been w- working with new view ideas in my organization for five years or so. And I, I really wanted to know, well, what what should I be asking my safety organization to do? How can the safety organization be promoting it? And like I said, this was the main game, but it was the final paper that I wrote because um, we had to actually get to the point where we felt confident to be able to lay these ideas out. So to do that, we did the beliefs research first, which we spoke about in episode 30, and then my ethnography of current practice, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a future episode as well. So this this paper was a really nice way to finish off my my research. And I was also hoping that it would be as read as widely as possible by practitioners. So we ended up publishing it open access. So when we link it to the show notes of this episode, it'll be, um, it won't be behind a paywall for any of our listeners. So David, I presume you're going to be doing most of the talking in this episode since it's your paper. And so I'll just run through the introductory stuff. Uh, the paper is called Safety to Professionals, How Resilience Engineering Can Transform Safety Practice, which I think is as many buzzwords about new view safety as we can get into one title without actually saying safety differently as well. Uh, it was published in the journal Reliability and Reliability Engineering and System Safety, which is one of the sort of big four safety journals, uh, published officially in 2020. And Ori has, I noticed, 12 citations, which means that it sparked a great deal of interest pretty immediately. I had a look through sort of who is citing it, and one of the citations is from the final editorial from the journal Policy and Practice in Health and Safety, which unfortunately ended this year. And that final editorial sort of talks about the need to have a continuing conversation about the role of safety practitioners in organisations. The authors of this paper are David Proven, David Woods, Sidney Decker, and Andrew Ray. Um, So that's three generations in one paper. David was a PhD candidate when he wrote this. Uh, Sydney and I were his supervisors, and David Woods was Sydney's supervisor. Um, And just sort of to complete the connection, by the way, I believe Eric Holnagel was David Woods' supervisor. So we interviewed David Woods on episode 24 of this podcast. 
But David, why in particular did you want Woods involved with this part of your work? So Drew, the first paper that we published during my PhD was a literature review called Bureaucracy, Influence and Beliefs, um, a literature review of the safety professional practice. And and I sort of tried to read, or I think I threw my arms around pretty much everything that had been written in the last 30 years about the role of safety professionals and safety professional practice. And there was one, one chapter, or it was an article that became a chapter in the original Resilience Engineering Concepts and Precepts book, which was published in 2006. But David, Dave Woods had got involved with some work at NASA after Columbia. I was actually on the Independent Accident Review Board for Columbia. And NASA had asked him about what they should do in the design of the NASA safety organization because of some of the conclusions that were drawn in the Columbia Incident Investigation Report. So David had written this chapter titled How to Design a Safety Organization, a Test Case for Resilience Engineering. And when I contacted him in 2017, I wanted to ask him, like, did you ever do anything more with this this paper because I've just pretty much read everything in the last 30 years on the safety profession. It was probably the, well, it was, in my opinion, the most insightful piece that I'd written that started to talk about the complexities and and challenges and possible directions for for the role. And um, he'd introduced that paper, some of our listeners might be familiar with the four eyes of a safety pr- professional, and he never really stepped out what to do, but he said, look, safety professionals, they need to be involved like really close to the operations, but they also need to be independent so they can test and challenge and and make decisions for themselves. They also need to be very informed about what is going on, but they also need to be informative. So they've got to be bringing new insights and new ideas to their organization. And he started talking about these tensions and contradictions and challenges and design ideas. And anyway, so I asked him if he'd done anything with it. And he said at the time, no, 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 the, the space shuttle funding got cancelled. Um, our project stopped and I went on to other things. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten that I wrote that. And so, look, I just said, look, would you be interested in working with us, yourself, Drew, and Sydney and I to try to deepen those ideas and make them a bit more practical? And he graciously said, said yes. And so in early 2018, I was able to go over to OSU for a couple of weeks and spend a couple of hours a day sort of bottoming out those ideas with with Dave. So David, you start the paper as is fairly typical of these sorts of papers by laying out some definitions. And what I like about these are, as far as I can tell, they're independent of the particular theory. So in the last couple of episodes when we've been talking about safety one and safety two, Holnagel sort of implies that different ways of thinking about safety need different, different definitions of what safety is. Whereas you've gone the other way, you've given a sort of united set of definitions, which you then break out into different ways of achieving those goals. So can you just run us through the sort of your ideas for the key terms that you're using? Yeah, so this actually came out of the, I'm I'm pretty sure it was the first round of peer review comments in the paper, because it went to reliability engineering and system safety. There was a few comments coming back about, oh, when you say safety, what exactly do you mean? And when you say risk, what do you mean? When you say safety professional... And, and it was really helpful because I, um, I'd done sort of the thing that we've been talking about other people not doing, which is we hadn't actually defined some of the key terms we're going to use throughout the paper. So we added in this section of definitions. And so maybe if I go through quickly, so we define the term safety. And when we say safety, we mean the ability for a system to perform its intended purpose while preventing harm to persons. So we also say that safety is an emergent property of the operational system. And so therefore, safety can be thought of as the combined result of all of the decisions and all of the actions for of all people with an ability to interact with the operational system. So thinking about that quite broadly, people who design a system, people who can exert any influence or pressure or impact on that system. We then talk about safety management different from safety. And we talk about safety management as a label being used to describe 
the practices that can direct, monitor and intervene in the core operations for the purpose of generating or maintaining safety. So safety management is an active thing that we try to do just to create safety within that operational system. We use the term risk. Um, we link that to safety, but use the term risk to refer to the level of uncertainty that the operational system will generate safety as an emergent property and the severity of the potential consequence to, consequences to people of a lack of safety. So we're talking there about consequence and uncertainty around whether the system will actually perform its function and keep people safe. And then finally, the term safety professional. And we use the term safety professional to describe the roles within an organisation that exist with the primary purpose of safety management and that do not have a core operational purpose within the organisation. So I think that was really quite good because we had to give some thought once we got asked for that clarification from the peer reviewers, Drew, to when we say safety, when we say safety management, when we say risk, and when we say safety professional, how do we define what we're talking about? And, and I noticed that those definitions don't draw any lines between different types of safety professional or different types of safety management. So they apply equally to engineering style activities or to operational activities or to behavior-based safety programs. That's all activities that people do, which has a combined impact of changing the operational system and therefore the emergent property of safety. And so Drew, we, we sort of, the way that the paper is structured, we sort of set it out in two parts and it's a little bit of like a from two paper. So when we're talking about transforming the role, and this was, I think, your idea, Drew, um, and maybe it was a little bit about the frustration that we were having with everything just being bundled up as safety one. We, we wanted to not get into this um, emotional debate about what we've talked about the last couple of weeks about safety one and safety two and one's good and one's bad. We just wanted to actually be really descriptive and say, what have organizations traditionally been trying to achieve um, to manage safety in their organizations? And what does the new view literature say that organizations should should be trying to achieve? And are they different? And so we do, we do lay out the paper with, with two different what we call modes of safety, two different ways of trying to achieve safety um, and not trying to say one's good or bad. Although once we get into it, we realize that um, there is probably some preferable ways of approaching safety. And so if I remember correctly, David, we had quite a few conversations around trying to create the sort of fairest and most generous case for what was the theory behind how Safety One was meant to work. And we sort of had to almost reconstruct that because mostly it is fairly atheoretical. But I'm fairly happy with what sort of ended up in the paper. Do you want to sort of d describe what centralised control looks like or how it's meant to work? Yeah, so the two the two modes of safety we talk about is centralised control and guided adaptability. And, and they're just two labels. And whether you, we talk about safety one and safety two, a little bit different, but obviously big overlap that we'll talk about in this episode. But centralised control was the big main idea that pervades, I suppose, our current and traditional largely approach to safety, which is about trying to reduce the variability of work, which we spoke about particularly in last week's episode around safety one and safety two, in that we we just want to standardise and prescribe and, and control and, and we want to centralise decision-making, we want to centralise the way that work happens. And so centralised control as a mode of safety management basically talks about the organisation determines what's safe, and then the organisation works to implement all these mechanisms and practices to align the operational work throughout the organisation with the prescribed roles, the prescribed requirements, and the prescribed procedures for the organisation. And then accidents and near misses and problems are believed to be the results of 
operational work not um, deviating from these prescribed practices or the prescribed practices not being sufficient to cover all of these operational scenarios. And so then remedies and improvement plans and um, corrective actions and focus on trying to increase the scope and the scope of compliance opportunity and also then the actual practice of compliance as work's being performed. And so our safety management practices, remember these these deliberate activities that we do within our system to try to generate safety are really targeted around identifying deviations and um, from prescribed work, which need to be detected and eliminated. So if I've described that kind of, hopefully I've sort of described that quite clearly in that we decide what's safe, we put in a lot of ways to actually make sure that work um, aligns with that then we tech, check and we correct as we go as we go forward in our organisation. So one thing that I find interesting is that most people, when they're trying to describe the difference between safety one and safety two, they start off with definitions. And in particular, they talk about, you know, the idea of our safety two is about learning from what goes well or what is normal instead of what goes wrong. Whereas you've really started from the practices, you know, what, how do, what does safety one try to do? Learning from what goes wrong is part of it, but it's just one practice in this overall management philosophy of trying to identify what safe is and then keep the organisation within the bounds of what is safe. And I think, Drew, we came at that from Safety One because we talk a lot in the New View Safety Theory, particularly really resilience engineering, about capacity. What are the organisational capacities that are trying to be created and enhanced through these approaches? And people know, like the like Eric's for resilient potentials of monitor, anticipate, respond, and learn, and trying to build these capacities. And so we had that discussion, Drew, which is that, well, all of our traditional approaches to safety have been about building capacity in the organization as well. And what are those capacities that those traditional approaches have been trying to build? And that's where we ended up with this quite practice-centric view, because we go, all of these practices have to be trying to actually strengthen the organization in some way. How might they be doing that? So before we go into the detail, could you just quickly run us through the alternative, what the decentralized mode looks like? So the decentralized mode was was about guided adaptability. And that really came, comes out of the new view theory. We spoke about that as one of the central ideas with, with Safety 1 and Safety 2 last week about the, the performance variability of work. And particularly a lot of the resilience engineering literature and a lot of Dave Woods' work, which is about that safety is created through capable and responsible sharp-end operators dynamically adjusting their work to match the situations that they face. Um, And accidents occur not because people don't conform to procedure, but accidents occur because the organisation and the people at the front line don't have that adaptive capacity to keep pace with the the changing needs and demands of, of operational work. And when we test that, I think when you when you test that in really fast-paced dynamic environments in in flight simulators and and nuclear control room simulators and things like that, we can we can see that safety is not just created by conformance to procedures, but we can see that safety is created by sort of dynamically adapting, sensing and responding to the situations that people face. So if that's what it is, how do you how do you manage that? And why we called it guided adaptability was because of attention that I always needed to reconcile in my mind, which is that how do you know whether an adaptation is about creating safety or how do you know if that adaptation is starting to create drift in the organization towards, let's say, unsafety? So the capacities that um, we're trying to create in an organization for guided adaptability. So Drew, the alternative guided adaptability really talks about four capacities. And this is a bit of a take on the four resilience potentials that we spoke about from Resilience Engineering and Eric, but we sort of, um, it had been updated because at the same time, David Woods was working on his theory of graceful extensibility, which we did speak about in episode 24. So we talked about these four capacities of an organization about anticipation. So creating foresight about future operating conditions, a readiness to respond, 
which is about maintaining deployable reserve resources available that can keep pace with the changing demands and that front frontline sharp end workers can access those readily expandable resources. Synchronization about coordinating information flows and actions across different teams and, and different actors within the system. And then proactive learning. So those activities by which organizations search for ways to um, ways that they might fail, but also the things that they need to do to support their continued operations, um, trade-offs, reprioritizations of work um, before incidents occur. So we did we did sort of redefine some of the resilience engineering literature in here and expand out some of the safety two literature when we we're starting to set up this um, revised role of a safety professional. So David, we've got all of these different theories. In the paper, you name check high reliability organizations, resilience engineering, safety differently, safety two. And now you've also name-checked uh, graceful extensibility. Um, and then this new one that you've talked about, guided adaptability. To what extent do the sort of differences between these theories matter when it comes to deciding how we go about doing safety as safety practitioners? They probably don't matter a lot practically, in, in my opinion, Drew. I'd be also very interested in your opinion. Look, for me, it was for me that there's a there's a big sort of Venn diagram that overlaps a lot in some of these core ideas. And we know that a lot of these different labels that we put on these new view safety theories are sometimes more about the individual academic than they are necessarily about, you know, the the difference in the underlying theoretical framework. I actually did a quick analysis this year, put it on LinkedIn. I can throw it in the show notes where I took all of those theories you just name checked, took the principles that sit within each of those, and then tried to actually look at doing some thematic analysis to see just how different and how similar are they. And they basically all line up in in varying ways, the different theories. And I suppose if 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 we then extend that thematic analysis, which wasn't really the purpose of this podcast, Drew, but just to run through, I sort of there was eight core themes that came out of those seven theories that you just name checked, which was about the capacity for organizations to have leaders who care about their people, to have an aligned understanding about and mental model in the organization about work and risk, to set workers up for success, to appreciate the variation and complexity of work, to closely monitor operations, anticipate future scenarios, and prioritize support learning, and then to adjust the organization's goals, structures, and resources to reduce pressure and conflict in the system. So whether you're talking about any one of those, those theories you name check, Drew, they more or less in different ways cover aspects of those those themes and principles. So for practitioners, I think it's, I don't think there's any point in saying, oh, I do human and organizational performance. I don't do safety differently. You're probably just telling people that you don't really understand what's underneath those theories. Yeah. I guess the way I think about it is that we've been doing essentially theory of centralized control for years and years without having any sort of underlying theory. Safety practice has just coalesced atheoretically on a set of established practices that people agree are the right thing to do. And so with the new view of safety, we're doing a similar thing, is that we're trying to coalesce around a set of practices that are a reformed way of doing safety. But the people who are proposing it are theorists. So instead of atheoretically doing it, we have a multitude of theories. You have gone from not enough theory to having lots of different theories, all of which mostly speak to the same practices, just with a slightly different theoretical understanding of why we should do those particular practices. Yeah, look, Drew, and I've said it a number of times, I might have even said it on the podcast, you know, I think most of our, most of what we did in traditional safety, we tend to most, we tend to link back to Frederick Taylor's scientific management in 1911. I think the best counter to that was um, the HRO literature, which we've spoken about a number of times in the mid 1980s. And I've spoken to a number of the theorists that we're talking about here and now about why in the mid 80s didn't all of all of us in the new view 
wouldn't have been so much me or you then, Drew. But why why didn't the group just all bundy in behind HRO theory and think how far we could have come in 35 years if we stopped worrying about theory when we had HRO and just actually work to um, to bottom out the practices, I think, you know, because really what we're talking about here is the difference between scientific management and high reliability organisations. So before we leap into the meat of the paper, there's one more bit of setup that you did, which is just explaining what it is that you were trying to achieve by the paper, which is essentially you said that we've got this new approach to safety. Uh, lots of safety professionals are looking at the new theories and either embracing or critiquing, but they're engaging in different ways with those theories. But the profession itself is operating very much in alignment with the theory of centralized control or safety one. So what you wanted to do was to establish a practical reference for how someone who wanted to shift their practice more towards safety two or more towards guided adaptability how they could make that movement, what it would practically look like. Is that a fair representation? Yeah, exactly right. I think one of the critiques or or, or criticisms even of, of Safety 2 was that it wasn't practical. And people said, how do I do this? Where do I start? And um, and for all of the theory that had been put together in the, in the let's say, in the two decades before we wrote this paper, it was a fair criticism. I mean, the 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 publication of, of practical reference points for for these ideas was was more limited than the theoretical reference points. So that was the aim. The aim was to try and say, if you're a safety professional and you want to do this stuff and you turn up at your desk or your site at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, what are some of the things you can start doing that might actually help create these different capacities in your organisation? And I remember, David, the first round of peer review for this paper. We've got all of these people complaining that Safety 2 doesn't give you any sort of practical implementation. So you publish, you submit a draft of this paper and the immediate response is, oh, this isn't offering anything new, <laughs> when it was like answering the exact thing that people are constantly complaining about. Yeah, this was probably my, the most challenging peer review because we we picked reliability engineering system reliability engineering and system safety as as the journal. And that was probably a bit of a mistake for this type of theory type paper or predominantly theory type of paper, probably just because of the reviewer circle within that particular journal itself. And you know more about rest than than I do, Drew. So I, I don't so I was while it was published in 2020 when the paper was submitted in 2018, this was a this was a genuine 24 month peer review process. So, so let's get on to the meat of the content. The, the way the paper is structured for each approach, you talk about some organizational capacities that we're trying to create, and then you list out the safety, safety professional activities that support those organizational capacities. So could you just walk us through, I think fairly quickly, because people are familiar with the old view, just uh, so that they're familiar with the structure, the organizational capacities for centralized control and how those then link into the type of activities that we do. So, Drew, the capacities in in centralized control, we'll talk about briefly about five capacities. So for an organization to have control over safety and risk and operations in their business in a centralized way, which is this, this traditional approach, the, what organizations try to do is have the capacity to analyze the hazards, so the factors that can cause their operations to become unsafe. They implement controls for those hazards, and these are physical controls and behavioral controls. They monitor their conformance. So both proactively and reactively through like audits, inspections, incident investigations. They delegate authorities to line managers and to safety professionals to make safety decisions. And they try to standardize their safety culture. So they promote leadership and a frontline commitment to prioritize safety over other things and, and get the consistent mindset and belief around safety within their organization. So those five core capacities, understand your hazards, implement controls, monitor conformance to those controls, 
delegate clear authorities and responsibilities and standardize your safety culture um, for a with a priority on safety. So those, again, unemotionally, Drew, those aren't bad things. And this is where I think we did a pretty good job of showing how safety one and safety two in some ways can be a bit um, complementary because you wouldn't want to necessarily stop doing all of those things, but you might want to wind some of them back and, and add to them with other ideas. And so the paper does talk a little bit about some of the ways organizations adapt in response to safety activities, trying to promote those things. One of the things that I think is a little bit different to other safety two approaches is that you've talked about this in terms of pressures and tensions. If I understand correctly, the argument is basically that the pressures and tensions are inevitable whenever you do safety one, but that doesn't have to mean that they lead into serious problems. It's just that they can lead us into a sort of pathological direction if we don't do something to balance those or to account for the pressures and tensions that get created. Is that a... There's a table in, in this paper which goes, well, these are all the capacities and they don't have to be bad. So to analyse risks and put in place controls and try to have a strong, consistent safety culture, they're not necessarily bad ideas. But we know from some of our podcasts, our listeners would know, we've, we've spent a bit of time in the institutional theory and the organizational literature and what happens in organizations is kind of um somewhat um interesting and challenging and you know in some ways um corrupts the ways corrupts the ways that practices might normally be intended to be performed by by theorists so and we see the same with safety too and and safety culture and, and other things like that so i did want to go through that literature and actually show in this table in this paper that you can do these task level analysis, but here's all of the things that might actually happen as a result of that, depending on you know what pressures and tensions get exerted within your organization. So how you might think you're doing an objective risk assessment, but then there's pressure for people to just find an answer that's palatable to the organization. So you actually don't assess the risk um, at all. So so we don't need to go through them all, Drew, but there's, a, there's a, I think about a two-page table that just lists out all the different references in the literature to the different ways that, that safety one approaches can not lead to safety in organisations. So, so let's just pick out one of them to give our listeners an idea of what it's like, and then they can look up the paper if they're interested in the greater detail. One of the examples you give is that safety professionals facilitate a task-level hazard analysis which has a very legitimate purpose. So under safety one, we want to identify and know what the safety hazards are associated with tasks. But then there's a bunch of literature that talks about what happens if you start facilitating task level hazard analysis. Um, then every task, you've got this extra process, which can have a negative impact on time and resource. Uh, you've got creating a fixed model of risk, which means that if the tasks start to vary a lot, that fixed model of risk isn't going to be able to cope with it. It's going to be saying some things are dangerous when they're not and failing to recognize other dangers. And there's a risk that that sort of activity shifts accountability away from management towards the frontline workforce. Andrew, I still get about a request every week for you to, um, for the take five paper. So you might get a few follow-ups again after this episode saying, when are you going to do the task level hazard analysis um, podcast episode? Uh, well, I've, I've noticed that this table here at least has some nice references for me on problems with task level hazard analysis that you've neatly cited. Uh, very good. And and there's ones after there. So so that's an interesting table for people to start to think about. And not all these things might be present in your organization, but depending on how you approach some of these activities now or, or in the past in your organization, you can see how those pressures and tensions can 
corrupt the intent of that safety practice and and not actually do anything to create safety at all. But let, let's move on to the positive stuff. So this particularly, if you're following along in the paper, is table four and table six, where we set out what the organisational capacities are for guided adaptability and then say, what does a safety professional do in order to try to create these organisational capacities? And so if we go through that table now, Drew, um, let's start with exploring everyday work. We've spoken about um, ethnographic interviewing on the podcast a few times. We've spoken about the need to understand frontline work. So the activity is exploring everyday work. It should be a core part of a safety practitioner's role and with the intention of understanding the way that the organisation is currently operating and then where resilience and brittleness is is present. Um, And that's really just about where that adaptive capacity is being deployed effectively and where the organisation is... um, um, vulnerable to um, to risk and failure. So, how does how does what are the tasks then? What does it mean on Monday morning for a safety professional? So, on one hand, it's to engage with and observe the challenges and problems faced by frontline work as done, and to facilitate the identification and implementation of safe adaptation. So, observe work, go out into your organisation, go onto your frontline, watch and talk with and engage with how people do their job, and specifically, what should you be looking at? Look at how they adapt and respond to the challenges that they face in their day-to-day work. What do they rely on? What do they draw down on? How do they communicate? How do they make decisions? How do they problem solve? Because actually what becomes really interesting to us is knowing what resources people draw on when they get faced with certain situations and then how they actually make those decisions about how they're going to deal with the situation in front of them. And then secondly, Drew, one of the other things is actually to understand the issues and uncertainties being grappled with by technical specialists and try to look for where the organisation might be discounting emerging uh, information and then monitor and enhance the rigour applied to safety critical decision making. So it's not just going to your front line, it's going to your engineering department and saying, oh, you know, what are the uncertainties and challenges that um, the engineering team are struggling with at the moment? And where where is the organisation not providing the resources and the support and maybe not listening to what your technical specialists are believing about the status of the system? Dave, just as you were saying that, the since we were talking about Columbia, the example that springs to mind there is Challenger. You people have talked about Challenger a lot with the launch decision and engineers trying to raise concerns and being unsuccessful in raising those concerns. And you can you can imagine just how different it would have been if the safety department had seen their role as going out and finding what engineers were worried about. And you're asking the question, what are you most concerned about? What's troubling you? Where are you, what are you, where are you most uncertain? Yeah, and, and how can the safety organisation amplify that voice? We talk about amplifying the voice of the frontline and amplifying the voice of technical specialists, being the translator and the interpreter for some of these roles on the frontline or in technical roles with management translating and interpreting those those messages for management. So Monday morning, um, you know, going out onto your sites and onto your front line and looking for the way people are, what challenges they're faced with and how they're responding and, and meeting those challenges. And then in the afternoon, you might cruise through your engineering department and, and find out what challenges and struggles um, your technical people are having and, and whether they're feeling heard by management or not or supported. Um, and that's probably a pretty good first day of the week. So the second one is about supporting local practices and guiding adaptations. So this is with the intent of, so, so you need to support um, frontline work, whether that's engineering work, whether it's operational work. The safety professional, core part of their role is to support the delivery, the execution of frontline work, and then to guide these adaptations for safety. And this is where we started wanting to really think about this because if we're, because the safety profession needs to make certain judgments about what, um, about what frontline work has done should be supported because it's safe and it's a good way of responding to the challenges that people face and what frontline work should actually be redesigned 
um, and changed because it's actually drifting into um, less safe ways of, of working. So ways of doing that, safe professional go out, understand how how workers are detecting problems and surprises and how they're understanding their, their changing nature of what they're facing, and then identifying those capacities that are supporting them to adapt. And where um, there's some consensus between the safety organisation and the front line, that the way that they're responding to those situations that they face is safe, then taking those practices and building them back into policies and procedures to, again, narrow that work has done, workers imagine gap, but then also to extend that to be proactive learning across the organisation. So if one team has solved a problem in a way that supports safety and supports the work to get done, then the role of the safety person is to take that practice, institutionalise it, and then um, export it across other frontline teams. So David, this is one of those, I think, common misunderstandings about resilience engineering that you were trying to correct in the paper at the same time as you were offering some practical solutions. People tend to think of safety one says the procedures rule and people should just comply with the procedures. And safety two says, oh, the frontline workers are right. Always trust the frontline workers. Um, And what you're trying to clarify here is that resilience is about making a hard choice in the middle, that it's not about either of the ends, which are nice and simple, but very often wrong. It's this hard part in the middle where we actually have to make decisions. Sometimes the frontline workers are right. Sometimes the adaption is dangerous and we need to do the difficult intellectual and social work of working out whether we're going to support the adaption or whether we're going to try to do something to bring it under more control. Yeah, and this is this is um, we've seen that in the in the the markers around some of some major incidents. You know, just how how local practices had had been adjusting over a period of time before before an incident occurred. You know, Eric Holnagel has written about the efficiency thoroughness trade off. People will also will always adapt their work, and so sometimes those adaptations will be um, delivering safety um, as an emergent property of the system, and sometimes those adaptations might be. Um, eroding safety margins in the system and that's like you said it's difficult intellectual and social work to make that call and and part of that is is the responsibility of the safety professional to understand the work so intimately and and understand the implications for safety that they can position themselves to be able to facilitate that conversation in their organization and if you remember Drew I think originally we the two modes were just called compliance and adaptability and we actually said no that's not right because adaptability is you know, not can be good or, you know, can can be safe or unsafe and um, compliance can be safe or unsafe too. So we actually talked about centralised control and guided adaptability to add a little bit of colour um, for what we were meaning with those terms. So if I keep going, Drew, through the table and we'll see, we might not even have, we may not have the time to talk about them all, but um, like I said, people can pick up the paper and engage with us further in discussion. But this, it starts to get harder and and, and these, this is, these roles and activities I'm painting out start to get harder and harder. So now we're talking about reducing goal conflict and and negotiating the redistribution of resources. So monitoring the goal conflict in your organisation and creating action to alleviate it. So we know right back from um, Rasmussen's work that we know we've got these trade-offs between resource and workload and cost and production and um, and and safety and compliance. And so the safety professional should be able to facilitate the reallocation of operational resources. So if a safety professional, you know, maybe Wednesday morning by now or Tuesday afternoon, you start looking at the production reports and the financial reports in the business and the human resources reports, and you're starting to look at where, what teams are under a lot of pressure. And so then you go out and talk to those teams to try to understand if they're discounting certain safety risks or making certain safety trade-offs because they're under pressure to catch up a schedule or catch up on cost or, or, or produce more or 
do more with less. So you understand you're understanding where that pressure is um, is pushing hard within your system, and then you create system wide action to reduce that goal conflict. So you go and talk to the finance department and senior management, and you get budgets adjusted, and and you get production targets redesigned, you get project schedules rebaseline. You 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 identify and you and you try to you try to negotiate out this goal conflict and pressure in your system. And then you also maintain an inventory of internal and external deployable resources. So technical specialists, key roles, critical equipment. So if you know that operators are, are a really important resource and you've got seven different plants, you might have a, you might create a list of all of the operators in your organization across all the different plants and what all their different skill sets are. So if plant A is down a couple of operators, you can go straight up to the manager and go, well, actually plant C's got three of these people you need. Plant D's got four of them. I'll go talk to those plant managers. Let's try and you know redeploy, spread across some of these operational resources. You might do the same with engineers or project managers or or other key roles in your organisation or equipment, um, particular types of production critical equipment or safety critical equipment that um, exists across multiple sites and multiple BUs. Because as a safety professional, you're better placed than someone within an individual individual business line to know what's going on in the rest of your organization. So again, I said that quite simply and quite easily, but you know, that for me would be an ideal way for a safe professional to maybe spend their Tuesday afternoon going and, you know, moving some people, moving some equipment around from areas of the organization which aren't under pressure to areas which which are, and, you know, getting budgets reset and production targets reset to try to get as little goal conflict and resource constraint in your system at any point in time. David, this really sounds like safety professionals getting involved in decisions that aren't safety decisions and trying to interfere with operational decision making. The word interfere, um, maybe intervene or maybe support operational decision making. Yeah, look, and if you read through here, you actually don't see the word safety very often at all. And, And the paper does talk about how different that role is and how organizations like to um, silo and fragment functional roles. So it's got a human resource department, it's got a safety department, it's got an engineering department. And, and, and yeah, we're now deep into the core of the way that the organization functions in the operation. And you know that's gonna take a certain level of credibility and leadership from a safety professional to be welcome within that operational environment, um, getting involved in these types of decisions, because it's not going to be a place where the organizations typically look for the safety person to be, you know, in the center of discussions about. So so if listeners are finding that one a little bit threatening, the sec- the next one along is maybe having a little bit easier Wednesday morning. Okay. So now, yeah, I don't know whether they're in order of difficulty, but yeah. So number four is about facilitating information flows and coordinating action. So safety professionals creating mechanisms to transfer information and coordinate action across organizational boundaries. So again, the safety professional is best place to see what's happening in the boardroom, what's happening in the front line, what's happening in, in all the different functional departments. So therefore, as, as the safety professional moves around those departments and moves around the frontline areas of the business, then they're going to then they're going to be in a position to see where there's, um, I think you spoke in this one, Drew, what I really like to use the term porous boundaries. What you need is, is organizational boundaries that information just sort of flows through in a, in a porous kind of way. So the safe session is going to create formal and informal mechanisms to receive information about what's currently happening in the organization and to facilitate the transfer of this information across organizational boundaries where it can enhance decision making. So, you know, you might go and have a coffee with the with the HR manager and just pass on some information that you're hearing from the front line about training and resourcing and recruitment and, and maybe leadership behaviors within a part of the business so that HR can think about it. It's 
policies and practices and what support it's providing into the organization in relation to that particular issue. Or you might hear from the engineering department that the procurement team, you know, keep buying the wrong pieces of engineering equipment. So you might be able to go over to the procurement team and just help them understand how to work better with the engineering team so that so that the engineering specifications flow, flow through into the procurement team in a way that they can be actioned more effectively. So again, playing this sort of translator role and, and conduit role for the organization around information, because we know where information doesn't flow from a part of the organization that knows about something to another part of the organization, which needs to know about it to make a good decision, then it can result in in problems and and uh, and you know maybe ultimately a safety type of incident so we've got three more to go on the list david do you want to just sort of run through each of them briefly yeah so that back half of the week i'll i'll go through them easy so the third is to generate future operational scenarios so this is using the current understanding you've got of the organization to predict possible future conditions so the task is like facilitating the development of future operating scenarios and an understanding of the associated safety risk um, and then facilitate contingency plans to try to respond to these scenarios. So what you want to do is things like, um, oh, we're behind on our maintenance this week, and then the next week you're doubly behind on the maintenance. And then you look and you go, well, actually, if we don't correct this in four months' time, we're going to be 3,000 hours behind on our maintenance, and we're going to be starting to miss and defer our safety-critical maintenance of our plant. So that's the sort of trajectory that we're on. So what are we going to do about that? So that's about creating that future operational scenario and going into the manager and going, actually, if we don't do something about this sort of weak signal now, in three months' time, we're going to be in a position where we can't even do our safety-critical maintenance um, and keep up with that. So what are we going to do about that? And creating contingency plans to, to do something about that. And then also as part of that, probing frontline workers and technical specialists to understand the uncertainty with current operations. So where are they unsure? Where are they uncertain? And what might it mean for the future operation of um, of the organization? And so again, it's it's people might say, oh, well, that's what risk management is. And I'd probably say, well, depending on how you do your risk management, it might be, but it's about really trying to be deeply sensitive to emerging signals in your business and be able to tell your organization we need to do something now because down the track it could look like this. And I think traditional safety has actually waited till it's been down the track and the and the incidents occurred. The next one is about I think one of the key words there that you brought up is uncertainty. Even though technically risk and uncertainty often mean the same thing, I think in practice it's a very different approach doing a risk assessment and trying to identify uncertainty. You very often when we do risk assessment, we spend our time documenting known problems that we're already managing. We spend much less time and we're much less inviting of people to tell us about issues that we can't immediately resolve or put some solution in place, just asking people where they're unsure. Yeah, absolutely. The next one, um, facilitating sacrifice judgments. So this is trade-offs. So supporting the understanding of trade-off decisions and the resolution of acute goal conflict. So again, this is about facilitating these development of contingency plans and making sure that there's, uh, let's say, redundancy for high-risk activities so that we can have justified sort of sacrifice decisions. So what this basically means is we talk sometimes about the authority to stop work for safety, and this is actually going beyond that where the organisation actually makes those conscious trade-offs to go, well, in case we have a problem here, we're going to make sure that we've got two cranes on site at this point in time. We don't know whether you know, crane A or crane B is going to be a better crane to do this particular task. So we've decided that we're going to put A and B on site. So when it comes to the day and depending on the conditions or the situation we face, we've got options. So really about making sure that where there's high risk situations, and it might not always be that level of redundancy, but where there's high risk situations that are coming up in the business operations, that there's actually some 
contingency plans around the uncertainty associated with those particular activities. And then the last one, Drew, is about facilitating learning. And we talk a lot about learning in Safety 2. And we're talking about creating organizational change based on current conditions and future scenarios. So what we specifically call out here is, um, again, leaning towards some of the stuff that gets talked about a lot at the moment in terms of psychological safety, about the safety professional continually monitoring and detecting sources in an organization that are contributing to the lowering of the openness of the culture and the um, psychological safety of individuals. So it's particularly looking for for things we've talked about in the podcast before that get in the way of learning, like blame and and sanctions and people who are afraid to raise issues and and teams where they which doesn't have the trust and the openness around it, and and working to restore kind of the openness and the trust into those parts of the organization. And then also we talked about building the capacity for individuals to um, adapt their work to the situations they face. We've trained our workers for so long to follow procedures. We actually now need to train them to say, well, no, no, we need you to monitor your work in real time. We need you to detect and respond to um, the emerging situations you face. We want you to draw down on, on these types of resources when you need to. We want you to adapt your work, you know, in in this sort of guided way as when you need to and 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 show that initiative so we actually talk specifically in here about that task of training workers in how to actually do that the, the original version of this paper was written back in 2018 i think we mentioned even though it was published in 2020 so in the meantime david you finished your phd you've been working pretty much full-time in your consultancy forgeworks to what extent do these uh principles of guide adaptability feed into the way that you have been advising people and mentoring and providing coaching? Look, I, I mean, it definitely feeds in. I think approaching, I'm still not satisfied that we've made this as practical as we need to make it. Like some of the, the big things that I've just said, then the big tasks is, is, is really hard to for practitioners to really perform in their organization because a lot of the institutional constraints um, on their role and, and things that they put on themselves. So Drew, look, it definitely informs it. I, I, I think we can. I think I almost feel in a position to write a, um, a next paper after this, which, which makes some of the ideas a bit more practical. And I found this is still also a bit of a A, a to B paper. And a lot of the times, it's you know the work is in the messy middle between those things that we spoke about with centralized control and and the guided adaptability piece. And and I suppose find myself not being able to, for organisations to be in a position to move you know, to fully embrace this sort of a, a role just because they're they're in the messy middle of traditional approaches and trying to start with new approaches and things like that. So I'm not sure if that's even answered the question, Drew, but yeah, I haven't been able to get an organize to get into an organization where we've been able to really take it to the extent that it's outlined in this paper. One thing that I I think it worried me at the time we were writing the paper and I'm sort of re-noticing it now, is that all of the verbs associated with safety one are fairly nice and definite when it gives the safety practitioner things to do. And then in the guided adaptability, some of them are very straightforward. So, you know, under facilitated learning, we've got develop and conduct training. That's something that safety practitioners know how to do. You can set yourself that as an annual task that during 2021, I'm going to develop and conduct training in dealing with anomalies and surprises. Uh, we've got identify sources of operational uncertainty. Well, you know, we know how to do identify you're at the end of identify, you've written a document, it's got some tables in there, you've got your list of sources of uncertainties, you've got ratings next to them. But then there's lots of these that just say facilitate. 
facilitate the development of possible future operating scenarios, facilitate the development of contingency plans, coordinate action and operational support. Lots of those things are much more ambiguous what's expected of the safety professional. Do you think that's sort of an inherent part of a safety tool approach is that it's less well-defined what safety professionals can do? Or is it just that we haven't developed it enough to create that definition yet? Maybe maybe a little bit of both, Drew. I think, um, I think maybe it is a little bit less by design needs to be a little bit less transactional and and more flexible um, because you're sort of yeah exploring everyday work is a bit different to do an annual audit you know like so again against your system against your management system so I, I think it's definitely less transactional I think by design it's 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 definitely more flexible but that doesn't mean that we can't get to the point like you say the second point which is to still make it practical and and clear so I think that's the bit now that I've I've spent a couple more years with these ideas that even reading through this paper now in preparation for this episode, I've gone, oh, actually, I think I could say that with some far more clear examples, you know, of what I think people should do. Let's then move on to practical takeaways. So the goal of the paper was supposed to be to provide these practical takeaways for safety too. So let's narrow it down to first steps. If let's say someone has picked up this paper, they've read through it, they think, yeah, actually, I want to move towards being more of a safety to professional, as you put it. What's what's the first step that they need to take? So I think the first step is, well, you've taken the first step if you picked up and read the paper. And the second step would then be give yourself some permission to act. One of the things that I um, learned about during my research is that there's a lot of pressure on all safety professionals from their organisation about how the organization thinks their role should be performed based on how their organization thinks safety is achieved. And so if you're in a traditional organization with a management team that um, that heavily influences your role, then you need to give yourself, you need to empower yourself, you need to give yourself permission to act, you need to um, sort of express your agency. So that would be the starting point. And part of that permission to act is creating some space in your role. So you need to work out how much time you've got to play around with some of these different um, ways of performing your role. So carving out some time in your week to be able to do this and then I'd just be looking at the table and saying, which things do I think I can I can I can do to help? So, for example, some of the examples I give to people is um, one of the things that I was doing when I was playing with this role. When I was playing with these ideas, I still had a year or so left before I left um, an internal safety professional role. Drew, when I was playing, when we were drafting this this paper, so I started on every Monday morning, started calling around all of the different sites. Um, in the organization and speaking to the asset manager and just said, oh, so what all the major hazard facilities and just said, oh, so, you know, what's happening this week? You know, anything, any any big big things happening on site? Uh, what are the things that you're worried about? What are you uncertain about? What what do you need support with? And just that'd be my first half a day on a Monday. I just find every single operational manager and actually get the lay of the land for the next five days across the organization. And inevitably they'd say, oh yeah, on Wednesday, we've got a new contractor coming that we've never worked with before. Or on Thursday, we're doing this major maintenance task. And I'd be then able to go, okay, to my safety organization and go, okay, I want you to go and, go and you know, be at this site on Wednesday or Tuesday to see how their planning's going for the Wednesday work activity or something like that. So if you look through this table, you'd see how that's all oh, actually trying to anticipate future operational scenarios, trying to facilitate, you know, the appropriate planning around those, trying to explore everyday work, understand levels of uncertainty. So I'd be reading through the table and trying to translate it into something that you can put into your calendar. You know, every Monday morning, I'm going to do this. Every Wednesday afternoon, I'm going to leave the office at lunchtime and I'm going to go to a site and I'm going to spend a couple of hours in the afternoon looking at work just for the purpose of seeing what situations people what what situations get come up with people's work and and how they respond to it. So that'd be the way I'd be approaching it through. Just give yourself permission, see how much time you can carve out, and then get actionable things into your calendar. 
that, that seems to be a common theme with multiple people I've talked to who've tried to change their role as a safety practitioner is that deliberate naming of a day of the week and saying, you know, whether it's every Monday or whether it's like Wednesday afternoon and just saying like this time is now redesignated every Wednesday in the afternoon. I am not doing other stuff. I am doing this new thing that I've decided is now part of my role. So is that the sort of thing you mean by you're creating permission to act and creating agency is just shaping that time in a new way? Yeah, and I think I'd also, um, to take that a little bit further as well, Drew, and, and have the conversation with your stakeholders in your organisation. So don't think that your stakeholders think deeply about what roles their safety professionals are performing. Like they might not give it much of a thought. They might actually be expecting you to come and tell them. So I would say when you're starting some of these things, I'd, you know, also go and have the conversation with your key stakeholders and say, look, look, this is what I'm trying to do with my role in the interest of being more effective in the organization. And to be more effective, I actually need to understand work so I can identify, proactively identify issues in the business. I want to, you know, these are the two or three things that I'm now trying to achieve more with my role than I have in the past. And these are the two or th three things that I'm doing to try to achieve that. And I'm still going to be doing all of these other expectations of my role as well. But I would be being clear with your organization about what you're trying to do. So then your organization, you know, can support you with that. And if you if you lay out that narrative in a nice, clear and simple way, I'd be very surprised if you didn't get broad support from your stakeholder group to go and do those things. So how about invitations to the listeners? What would we like to hear from our listeners in response to this episode? So look, I'd really, I'd love to hear if what, particularly in, in our community, I suspect some, there are some I mean, I know that we've got a big safety professional community of listeners, and I suspect that some of those people are trying to do some of trying trying to um, be deliberate about the role they're performing in the organisation and what they're trying to create. So, I'd love to hear from our listeners things that you have changed in your role as a safety pra practitioner to try to build some of the capacities around safety too and um, other new view theories into your organisation. What specific things did you change in your role and how did that how did that work out for you? And have you got any hints and tips for other listeners about how to go about making changes in your role? So I think that's it for this week and for our first episode of 2021. Uh, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and we certainly hope you found it ultimately useful in shaping or reshaping the safety of work in your own organisation. As usual, join us on LinkedIn or send any questions, comments or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 